As you're finding your seats, go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 10. We'll be looking at the first 12 verses of Mark 10 today. I'll go ahead and read this passage for us. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would give us humble hearts this morning to hear your word. I pray that we would see your intentions, that we would see your grace and your mercy for us, and Lord, that we would grow deeper in our faith because of this today. Would you help us, Father? In Jesus' name, amen. You may have noticed as you opened up this passage today that the heading tells you this passage is about divorce, or it says teachings on divorce, or Jesus' teaching on divorce. I think this is a good opportunity for us to be reminded that these headings, as well as the chapter, the verse numbers, they are not inspired and inerrant scripture. These things are merely there to aid us in our study. Now, the reason I bring this up is not to say that this passage doesn't teach on divorce, but rather that you would hear this passage is about more than divorce. I invite you all to listen closely today because this word, this passage here is for you. If you've never been married, this word is for you. If you're married and have never even contemplated divorce, this word is for you. And if you are divorced, have been divorced, getting divorced, or even divorced and remarried, this word is for you as well. I know this because this word is breathed out by God. And it's to be used for teaching, reproof, and encouragement. This isn't just for the ones whom we think really need to hear this today. But rather that each and every one of us need to submit ourselves to his word and allow the spirit to convict and to guide us today. This passage teaches us about divorce, but it teaches us so much more than that. Several weeks ago, Pastor Chuck preached a message uh, from Mark 8. Mark 8 has these words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The passages in Mark that follow that have been revealing little by little what does it mean to deny ourselves and follow after Jesus. And we've learned over these weeks, it means putting our faith and our trust in him. It means laying down our desire to seek status for ourselves. It means becoming a servant. And it means taking our sin seriously. Our willingness to pick up our cross gets called into question when the effects hit closer to home. Are we willing to follow him when it affects our marriage or our sexuality or our wealth. The tension in this passage is that Jesus sets such a high standard for marital faithfulness that it not only disrupts secular understanding, but it challenges the religious people as well. Jesus teaches us that if we are to follow him, we must respect marriage the way Jesus does. So the narrative opens up with a new setting beyond the Jordan, As was usual, the crowds are swarming Jesus. And something struck me in these words. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. As we approach a passage that might create tension within us, I want us to remember this description of our Lord, that he has not grown weary of needy people. Here, as anywhere, his posture is to welcome and to teach The crowds, they come eager to learn, and the shepherd is eager to feed his sheep. And now amidst this crowd are these false shepherds. They stand apart from the crowd when they approach Jesus because the Pharisees come in order to test him. They ask, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The test is an attempt to drag Jesus into a contemporary debate that went on amongst the scribes and the Pharisees and the rabbis. And Jesus, clever as always, does not enter in with a simple yes or no, but asks them to defend their perspective of the law. They respond saying that Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send his wife away. I think it's important to understand the background of this debate. Uh, So we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, the first four verses, and this will be up on the screen for us. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife... And the latter man hates her, writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance." This passage is part of a case law in Deuteronomy. The actual law in focus in that passage is about a man trying to remarry a woman whom he has sent away. The reason for the debate is this is the closest that the law comes to giving guidelines on divorce. This is it. This is the closest. 
The popular debate of the time was parsing out what exactly qualifies as finding indecency in her. Was it only in sexual immorality? Could he divorce if she becomes unattractive to him? Or to the point of one rabbi's teaching, a man may divorce his wife if she so much as burns his dinner. This debate is astonishing because the posture of the Pharisees is to parse out under which circumstances can we consider it to be a lawful divorce. They then appeal to this law in Deuteronomy, which interestingly enough is not about divorce, but it is a regulation put in place to prevent a woman from being exploited through petty divorce and remarriage by missing the weightier matters of the law which reveal justice and compassion, the Pharisees are seeking a legal loophole that allows men to trade in their wives for a newer model, all the while keeping up appearances in society. Jesus weighs in on the debate by saying, it is because of your hardness of heart that Moses wrote you this commandment. The law in Deuteronomy does not explain the stipulations behind divorce, but rather states it as a fact that divorce does exist. It is sanctioned, and there is a certificate given under certain circumstances. Jesus' comment is saying, your hardness of heart reveals why divorce had to be sanctioned under law. Do you ever read warning labels put on products? Could you imagine being the reason that some of those labels had to be written? I googled some of the silly warning labels and these are my favorites. On the packaging for an iron, it said, do not iron clothes while wearing them. <laughs> Another label on the packaging for a chainsaw said, never hold the wrong end of the chainsaw. Warning labels on consumer products are sometimes a reminder of the lack of common sense that people have, but in other instances, they remind us that people intentionally use products in unrecommended ways, despite the warning signs, because really, those warnings are just for the dummies, not an expert like me. The warning labels can also be a showcase of frivolous lawsuits of the past, where the consumer tries to get out on the technicality that the guidelines were a bit unclear. People are going to use a product however they desire, going against warnings, going against recommended usage. And so companies now produce warnings less for warning against real dangers and more to cover themselves against the stubbornness of man. Divorce was sanctioned under the law in order to curb evil and allow society to prosper despite sin. The further case law in Deuteronomy 24 was given because men inevitably twisted this law for sinful gain. Sin has so hardened our hearts that in our natural state, we do not desire to live as God intends. The increase of laws cannot prevent a stubborn man from using the law as he chooses. Proof of this is provided in the Old Testament law that as much as God could legislate moral demands and civil ethics, it could not cover the exponential rate at which we break the law. 
The law is powerless to produce obedience because it further entices our sinful desires. It's like when you see a flashing red button that says, do not press. And on the one hand, you know you shouldn't, but there's that undeniable urge to find out just what would happen if you did. The Pharisees searched the law for ways to have marriage on their own terms. And we do the same thing. The Pharisees desire to know if it is lawful for a man to choose to divorce his wife. Their follow-up questions would naturally be asking what situations allow them to divorce. And we recognize that our flesh desires to test Jesus in this exact same way. We want to know how far is too far? What sexual acts are permissible outside of marriage? How much am I supposed to tithe? And is that before tax or is that after tax? When does it become gossip? When is it allowable for me to lie? Jesus, tell me what that line is that I'm not supposed to cross because I want to go all the way up to that line, maybe hang out right on top of that line, maybe just dip my toe across the line every once in a while. We may even be just like the Pharisees and have all of our theological support for our sins. We may have a stack of Bible verses that we've twisted to technically permit our transgressing of his law. Oh, maybe we point to church history or we we point to our favorite Bible teachers or this podcast that we've been listening to. It is because of our hardness of heart that commands have to be given. Being able to mount a legal defense of why we broke God's law will not amount to obedience. No one is walking into heaven on a technicality. The law is powerless to give us the righteousness that we need to be with Jesus. Our hearts are too hard. The hard heart wants more laws so that we can look good in our own eyes. God desires a soft heart that is obedient to him. Now, when Christ saved us, he freed us from the law and he ripped out our hearts of stone and implanted in us a heart of flesh and our new hearts have the law embedded on them. And more than that, he put his spirit in us to guide us and to compel us to walk in his ways. And the good news is, if you hear this word that you have manipulated God's law, that you have failed to obey him with your whole heart, if you have been stubborn and hard-hearted, Jesus says, come to me and find rest for your souls. Humble yourself and come to him and confess these sins. Our God is rich in mercy and grace and will forgive our hard-heartedness. Our Lord delights to give you a new heart, a clean heart, one that hears his voice and follows his ways. And you might be asking, but Pastor Austin, what does this have to do with divorce? Jesus has a hard teaching for us on divorce today. And a hard heart will not hear his words. A hard heart instead desires rules and laws. If we are to be Christ followers, if we want to call ourselves cross bearers, we must come to him with a soft heart. It requires a soft heart not only to hear his words, but also to walk in his ways. 
So as we listen now to Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce, let us come to him with a soft heart. Let us not treat him as just another teacher or just another rabbi with his own interpretation or ideas that I just get to take at my own leisure. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is lawgiver as well as the only lawkeeper. So let us submit our broken ways to his perfect way. Hear these words again from verses 6 to 9. But from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I will admit that it is inconvenient to be studying a passage on divorce on Father's Day. And then, on top of that, depending on your perspective, it is either rather convenient or inconvenient for an evangelical church to study this passage during Pride Month. But we're working our way through the book of Mark and we're seeking to be faithful to the scripture, to what it's telling us, regardless of the narratives that are running through our society or what the calendar might suggest. In the debate about divorce, the Pharisees, they build their case from Moses Jesus, he builds his case from creation. The number one thing that we should see that is so evident from these verses is that God has created with intention. Jesus quotes these two verses from Genesis 1 and 2, which will be on the screen, to show God's intention. The first is that he purposefully made male and female. And because gender is such a hotly debated thing in our culture, the modern mind might look at these words as archaic, and out of date, certainly out of touch. But when you consider the time in which these words were written, there would have been no reason for God to spell out that he made male and female. If anything, it would have flown in the face of a patriarchal society that viewed women as an afterthought. Specifically saying females and not just males were made in God's image means that men and women are of equal dignity and value. But we only get that, we only get that if we see that gender is by design and with purpose, otherwise it is up to hard-hearted, broken, sinful people to determine dignity and value. Jesus' words are plain here. God created male and female, and this is directly related to the design of marriage. From the beginning, God issued forth that a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two become one flesh. God's intention is to take male and female who are equal yet opposite and fuse them into one flesh by marriage. And I know what that teaching sounds like in 2022, but Jesus isn't speaking in a riddle. He's not giving words that can be interpreted in many different ways. It's plain and laid out before us. God's intention from creation was one man, one woman bound in marriage permanently. And with Jesus' words plainly laid out in front of us, the question is not what the Bible says, but simply are we going to submit to them or not? Jesus calls his disciples to deny themselves, pick up their cross, and follow him. And following Jesus comes at the cost of fitting neatly into what is popular 
in society. Those with ears to hear and a soft heart will receive the rich elevation of marriage in these words. Several couples in our church can attest that if you go through premarital counseling with my wife and I, we will ground our discussion in these words, leaving our families of origin, cleaving to our spouse emotionally, physically, spiritually, and then becoming one, oneness in all of life, committed, bound, united as one, which then the physical act of sex is an illustration of. Jesus elaborates on the words of Genesis by saying, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Humans have made a mockery of this union. And I say this before we even get to talking about separating a marriage. We have made a mockery of this union by trying as hard as we can to remain as two people, yet with tax benefits and a joint mortgage. Historically, this has been mocked where men have treated women as property or as servants rather than a united spouse. It is mocked in modern marriages where two people are really no more than roommates. Marriage has become an act of convenience and it is abandoned when it is no longer beneficial. You might say, well, my marriage doesn't do that. But we all, we all make a mockery of this union because we all sin. Much of the disputes and conflicts in marriage come from failing to be in this definition. A man or a woman may remain emotionally, physically, or financially dependent upon their parents instead of forging a new family together with their spouse. Either spouse may fail to cling and hold fast or cleave to their spouse when something rises up that causes us guilt or shame or failure or pain, things that should cause us to cling tightly to our spouses become wedges between us instead. And these conflicts lead us to then say, I'm going to do my thing, you can do your thing. This is my money, so I'm going to spend it for things that I want. You are not bending to my will, and you need to change. That is because of sin in our heart, that this conflict is there in all of our marriages. God's design is that we would deny our rights, deny our desires, and be united fully with our spouse. We are no longer two, but we are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man should not seek to separate. It should not surprise us then that separation in a marriage causes deep pain. This is true for so many of you here today. Whether you yourself have been divorced or you're the child of divorce or you've walked through divorce with a friend. When we are married, God fuses us together. He binds us. He joins us as one. So divorce is then a violent ripping apart, a tearing asunder what God has put together. No one leaves divorce unscathed. But I don't think anyone plans to get divorced. I don't think that's in anyone's life goals. Instead, people get married knowing the potential pain involved if they were to divorce. And then there's that relational pain, but then there's societal pains, there's pressures, there's the unknowns. And then on top of that, in the religious community, 
It is so clear why people would be searching the law to find a safety net. Is there a way that I don't have to be backed into this corner, but I can get divorced without social and religious recourse? And Jesus says, marriage is meant to be permanent. Becoming one flesh with another is giving up your rights to a safety net. Do not enter marriage expecting it to end at your will. In the parallel account of this teaching in Matthew 19, the disciples respond to Jesus, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And Jesus replies, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. It takes a soft heart to follow Jesus. It takes a soft heart to enter into marriage on God's terms and not my own. So let's not grow in pride in our hearts. If divorce has never been a thought in our mind, it doesn't mean that our marriages are as God intended. Just because you follow God's design of one man, one woman, doesn't mean you're in a healthy marriage. Even if you're not divorced, but the separation between you and your spouse looms as an undercurrent of your marriage, you are not doing marriage as God intended. Let's not merely toe the line between marriage and divorce, but instead let us explore the riches that exist in the oneness that God has designed for marriage. Let us humble ourselves and repent of our selfishness and quit trying to make marriage work only for me. Seek to be united as one with your spouse. Let's read verses 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Sometime later, after Jesus taught the crowds and the Pharisees, Jesus is alone with his disciples, and they revisit this discussion of marriage and divorce. We do not know what the follow-up question was from the disciples, but it prompts this teaching that if a person divorces their spouse and marries another, they are committing adultery. This is a hard teaching from Jesus. We must not run to Jesus with our exceptions and our exclusions and our excuses, but let's hear his word with soft hearts. In the parallel teaching, once again in Matthew 19, the Pharisees ask a slightly different question. They say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And Jesus responds there, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another, he commits adultery. It is likely that for Mark's largely Gentile, largely Roman audience, it would have been widely accepted that sexual immorality is grounds for divorce, and so he didn't include that here. And as much as I would prefer to sit with the silence and the gravity of this passage, as the words are portrayed in Mark, I do not feel like in good conscience I can withhold the wider teaching of Scripture on divorce. 
The author's intention in this passage is to condemn the frivolous divorces that were being allowed, especially by the religious leaders. The issue here is too lax a view of marriage. We must see that Jesus gives allowance for divorce in certain circumstances, in particular sexual immorality. And Paul also addresses this issue in 1 Corinthians 7, that if an unbeliever abandons their believing spouse, that divorce is permissible. I think it is fair to say that as long as there is sin, as long as there is hardness of hearts, divorce will be a matter of fact. We must resist the urge to be like the Pharisees and come to Jesus saying, give me a list, give me a list of all the allowable circumstances for divorce. In fact, I feel that as though having that allowance for divorce for sexual immorality, I think that actually tempts people to divorce prematurely. We must be cautious if a brother or sister comes to us revealing the unfaithfulness of a spouse that we are not quick to run to divorce as an answer. The point of this passage is that we would elevate our view of marriage because God has intended for it to be permanent. Divorce must be a last resort. We must be champions of marital fidelity, fighting arm in arm with our brothers and sisters to the bitter end, if that be the case. And then we do not abandon our brothers and sisters, but we grieve with them, encourage them, and care for them. And for those of you who have been divorced, I can't imagine the kind of weight that you might be feeling hearing a passage like this. I don't think any story of divorce is a simple one. And I do not presume to be able to sift through all the possibilities about what caused the divorce or the circumstances of your remarriage. But I urge you, go to Jesus with this burden. It may require opening up some wounds, reliving the pain that came from separation. But ask the Spirit to reveal to you, is there sin from your side of divorce that you have not dealt with? And then, this may be your first time as well to ask, have I committed adultery by my marriage to my current spouse? Now, the wrong response to that would be to go and divorce your current spouse. The proper response in all of this is go to Jesus in repentance. The answer to every sin is going to Jesus. 1 John 1.9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Go to Jesus. Receive His grace and His mercy. Allow Him to lead you in the path of righteousness. If, if you need help processing your divorce or you have questions or confusion surrounding that, please come talk to one of us pastors. If you have issues in your marriage, please come and seek out a pastor. For too long, the church has been a place of keeping up appearances, of casting judgment on others, and abandoning those who are struggling. Let's be different at Westchester. We are, we are all coming to the cross on equal footing. We're all so desperate for his grace and mercy 
And if we are not willing to give compassion and godly counsel, people who are struggling will find counterfeit compassion and ungodly counsel outside the church. Let's not let our view of marriage stop at being technically right in the voting booth. Let's instead strive and fight for healthy marriages, urging one another on to oneness with their spouse. I also want to remind those of you in the room who are single that you are not exempt from this conversation. As the body of Christ, we must bear one another's burdens and encourage each other to holiness. Single people can point people to Christ-like marriages. Jesus and Paul, both single, by the way, both gave us teaching on marriage. To the end of elevating our view of marriage and promoting oneness in marriage, I have some practical considerations for us. How do you speak about your spouse to others? God has made you one with them. Do you commend them to others? Do you praise their gifts and their love and their devotion? Or do you go to others with criticisms and complaints? How do others view your spouse because of your words? Do you air the dirty laundry of your conflicts, trying to get your family and your friends on your side of the argument? Petty arguments or otherwise, are you causing shame on your spouse? God has made you one with this person. Shame heaped on that person is a reflection on you. Another to consider as friends. What kind of gossip or slander do you tolerate? Do you challenge and question how your friends speak of their spouse? Or do you join in berating them? Or does your silence give approval? It's always important in conversations about marriage that we recognize that abuses in marriage are rampant in Christian circles in particular. So many are like the Pharisees with hardened hearts using Bible verses as weapons to gain control over their spouse. And some of you here may be experiencing physical, emotional, or sexual abuse in your marriage, and I want you to know that we take that very seriously as pastors, and we want to help. Jesus doesn't approve of that treatment, and we want to be on his side supporting the victims of abuse. So please, come and talk to us. And now in closing, I, I hope you have seen that this passage is about so much more than divorce. In particular, it is about elevating marriage and following after Christ. And Jesus teaches not to condemn, but to give life to those who would follow him. If we come before him with our pride like the Pharisees, we will be humbled. If we come to him humbly, he will give us grace and mercy. There is hope for you. There is hope for the brokenness in your marriage. There is hope for you after divorce. Humble yourself, go to Jesus, receive his mercy and his grace. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. Jesus, I thank you for your clarity. And Holy Spirit, I ask your help 
in receiving the words and following in the way that you have prepared for us. God, let us bring honor to you in our marriages. God, that we would elevate our understanding, that we would would praise the oneness that you have created us to be in. So help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.